So if you would grab your Bibles, we are going to be in Nehemiah 13. We're going to finish up the book of Nehemiah today, but we are actually going to read from Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to read from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So if you would, turn to Proverbs chapter 3, and also please stand as we give honor to God's Word. And let's listen to God's Word for God's people. Proverbs 3, my son... Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight, but not wise in your own eyes. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with your firstfruits of all your produce, Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. The Word of the Lord. Father, we do thank You for Proverbs chapter 3 and the wisdom contained in this section. And really, we're going to hear a lot of these themes throughout uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 today. And that's why we read it. And so, Lord, I pray that You'd give ears uh, for those who need to hear and eyes to those who need to see this morning. Father, and what we know not, will You please teach us? And what we have not, will You please give us? And what we are not, will You please make us? By the power of Your Spirit and formed by Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. All right. Finishing up our study of Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been in there for about two, two plus months. It's been a great study. And I want to I end with this. As, as Christians, we've all had at least one at least one, but probably multiple mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Right? Can I get an amen in here? Amen. Um, uh, And I want you to think about, when was the last mountaintop experience you had with God? When has He done something extraordinary in your life where you just, man, your mind is blown, your heart is filled with joy, and you just scream out, thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. When was that last time you had that mountaintop experiences? experience? Now, we understand that we don't live on the mountaintops. Uh, God takes us from the mountaintops and He brings us sometimes in the valley. And, and it's in the valley where there's the richest soil, especially in the wineries like in California. The, the valleys have the richest soil, and that's where God prunes us. That's where God uh, grows us. This is where He disciples us. It's where He matures us in the valleys. But in the valleys, there's even another experience that we have, and we sang it this morning. Uh, my favorite hymn that we sang, Come Thou Fount. And that, va- that valley experience is sometimes accompanied by prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How many of you had that experience? Go ahead and raise your hand. Yeah, that's the natural experience. We all feel that. There are times where we wander away from God. We do choose sin over God's goodness. Uh, we do choose to follow our flesh over God's Word. We, we are prone to wonder. And this is not a unique problem to you or to me. Now, this is a problem that since Adam and Eve fell has been there since the beginning. I can give you example after example, but let's just think of Moses. We taught through Exodus uh, a couple years ago. Moses. Moses rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt. They, they wander in the desert for a while, and there's some, there's some wandering that happens there, but they finally get to Mount Sinai. It's a mountaintop experience because they're finally getting ready to enter the promised land. God is going to meet them. He's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's going to make a covenant, and He does. You can't get much bigger than that when God visits you and says, you are my people, and you will be, I will be your God. And then a couple days ago, Moses goes up to, to the mountain to hang out with God. The, the people are down low, and what happens? 
when Moses comes down the hill. He finds Israel what? Wondering, worshiping a golden calf. Mountaintop to valley to prone to wonder. You think of Peter. Peter, the, 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 the lead apostle. He was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus transform. He saw God speak to him. He was there. It doesn't get much better than that. And he comes down the mountain. Jesus gets arrested. And what happens to Peter? He starts to wonder. He, he denies his king three times. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. We all go through this. Everyone in here knows of mountaintop experiences to valley experiences. And sometimes we have this prone to wonder, prone to leave the God I love experience. But the good news is that the Lord always brings us back into His fold. And that's what we're going to kind of look at today. Because we are prone to wonder, because we are prone to wonder away from the Lord, we need God's Word. We need God's people. And ultimately, we need God's Son, Jesus. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. So let's dive into Nehemiah chapter 13. First, because we are prone to wonder, we need God's Word for direction. Because we are prone to wonder, we need God's Word for direction. Nehemiah 13, 1-3. Look at it with me. On that day, on what day? On the day of dedication, I actually think that this goes back with chapter 12, but I decided to put it in here, uh, and you'll see why in a second. But on that day, the day of dedication, last week we looked at the big celebration, the mountaintop experience, when all the people of God gathered around to rejoice in what God has done. He revitalized the city, He revitalized the people, and now they're worshiping the Lord. On that day, they read from the book of Moses, and in hearing of the people... And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God or be a part of the worship in the community. Now I said I could have put this three verses with last week's message, but I decided to to keep it here for a reason. Because I wanted to contrast Nehemiah 12 and 13. And the contrast is this. Good things happen when we immediately respond to God's Word. Good things happen. When we hear God's Word and respond to it, good things happen. He moves through His Word. He speaks through His Word. But bad things happen when you let sin lead and linger. So good things happen. We're going to see in verses 1-3, through but then bad things happen in verses 4-31. through And what we see here is the problem in verse 1-3 through is that there's Ammonites and Moabites in the assembly, in Israel, worshiping with them in the temple, in the, in the city. Now, one thing I want to quickly point out is this is not about ethnicity. This is not saying that no Ammonite or Moabite can worship God or be a part of the covenant community. It's not about ethnicity. It's all about spirituality. Those that hold to a different worldview, those that worship to different gods, cannot be part of the people of God. They just cannot mix. And that's what he is saying here. Listen, all are welcome to come and worship Yahweh as long as they forsake their gods and bend the knee to King Jesus and Yahweh. You think about Ruth. Ruth was what? She was a Moabitess. And she was the great-grandmother of who? King David. And then you go to Matthew chapter 1, we see that she's in the lineage of King Jesus. So it's not about ethnicity. It's all about worldview. And the problem here is that these Ammonites and these Moabites were the enemies of God. They wanted to see the people of God torn down. They wanted to see them disintegrated. The, the problem is, is that the people of God, they didn't have the Word of God, but then they heard the Word of God. They, they let the wolves into their gathering, into their community. These long-standing enemies. And it gives in verse 2, it kind of gives a, a little historic background with the Ammonites. Um, uh, back when Israel was wandering, they had the opportunity to go through the Ammonites' land to get to the Promised Land, and they asked to go through peaceably, and the Ammonites said, no, you cannot go through. And then they actually started to attack Israel. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 22, I think through 25. You can read about this. These were the enemies of God. They even, the Amites even sent out this false prophet, Balaam, to curse the people of Israel. They were enemies. And so it says in verse 3 uh, that um, they, as soon as they heard the law, as soon as they heard the book of Moses being read, Deuteronomy 23, they responded. 
they acted immediately on the Word of God. And that's what I want to focus on in the application for you and for me, is that when we hear God's Word, it will profit us if we act on it immediately, especially when it comes to dealing with sin, especially when it comes to temptation, that when temptation comes on us, we that have the Word of God in us and that we respond immediately and correctly. This is great wisdom for us this morning. Listen, if our wills are controlled by the Holy Spirit and informed and our lives are submitted to the Scriptures, then there are sometimes, listen to me, there are sometimes where you don't need to pray about doing something. You just need to respond. When, when the temptation immediately comes on to you, there are times where you don't need to pray about, well, should I do this or not do this? Because God's Word informs us, and it says don't do that, so you should respond immediately. There's a number of ways that we could talk about it. We could talk about pride. We could talk about gossip. We could talk about anger. We could talk about arrogance. But I want to talk about sexual sin because that hits all of us and is pervasive in our culture. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, This is the will of God for you. Last week we looked at the will of God. We saw an attribute of the will of God is rejoice always. Pray continuously. Well, here's another piece of God's will for you. Your sanctification that you should abstain or something flee sexual immorality. That's for all of us. That's the command. When we are tempted with any kind of sexual temptation, immediately we should abstain. Immediately we should flee. We don't need to sit and pray about, well, gee, should I uh, not look at this? Case in point, let me contrast two guys, King David and Joseph. David was on his roof. And he let sin linger. He saw Bathsheba bathing. He let sin lead and linger. And he stared and he fell into sin. Joseph, on the other hand, he knew God's Word. He knew what God desired of him. And when Potiphar's wife came on him, advanced on him, said, hey, will you lie with me? He was like, I cannot sin against God. Immediately. And then it says day after day in Genesis 39. Day after day, she peppered him, peppered him, peppered him, peppered him. And it said he ignored her, he ignored her, he ignored her. And then finally one day she gets all fed up. She's so aggressive that she goes after him, tries to ambush him. And she basically rips his clothes off as he runs away. So this is good wisdom for us. There are times in our lives when faced with temptation that we flee immediately. We act immediately. Just like the people in Nehemiah's day. When they heard the book of Moses, as soon as they heard the law, they acted. And I know it's difficult. And so this is what we do. This is a great principle for us on how to fight sin. Is that in the, in the, in the calming times, when we're not being tempted, we pray. We study God's Word. Oh, we hear from the Lord. There, there is prayer that happens with temptation. We always pray. Nehemiah is a man of prayer, as we've been seeing. We pray so that when that temptation comes in, we're all ready to go. When that temptation comes, we can just react and respond and run away. I know it's difficult to battle sin, but listen, and tell me if this is not true. Every time you use Scripture to defeat the temptation at that moment, you, you, you quote the Bible, the Bible moves you, empowered by the Spirit to flee. It never leads you into sin, but it always leads you away from sin, right? God's Word never leads you into sin. It always leads you away to sin because it's God's Word and His Word is for Him. points us to His glory and our joy. And so I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said this, said if he were to cut up any Christian, that what we would believe is we would bleed Bible. Because that helps us in the, in the heat of temptation. So that's number one. Number two, because we are prone to wonder, we need God's leaders and His people. Because we are prone to wonder, we need God's leaders and His people. Nehemiah 13, 4-31. Now in Nehemiah 13, 4 through 31, we have these three examples, or we see three wonderings of the nation of Israel from the mountaintop experience in Nehemiah chapter 12. And, and the Lord uses Nehemiah to, to show us, to show the people, uh, uh, confront their evil deeds and, and how to come back to and be cleansed, 
to get back into right relationship. As we go through these three wonderings, these three examples, it should take you back to Nehemiah chapter 10. We went through Nehemiah chapter 10 a couple weeks ago. And the three wonderings here are the three commitments that they made in Nehemiah chapter 10. If you guys remember, in Nehemiah chapter 10, the walls were built in Nehemiah 7. In Nehemiah 8, you had this great revival. The Word of God is preached. The people are like, man, we haven't heard this stuff before. Now we hear it. We understand it. We believe it. We're going to walk after it. In chapter 9, they repent and confess their sin. And then in chapter 10, you have this, this, again, revival to the Scriptures and the commitment to follow after Yahweh. And they said, we will take care of the temple. We won't intermarry, and we will keep the Sabbath. Those are the three things they highlight, but we see is these are the three wonderings that they struggle with here. The first wondering, the first wondering is this, neglecting the temple and worship. And it kind of goes in reverse of chapter 10. Uh, In chapter 10, it was marriage, Sabbath, temple. And in chapter 13, it's temple, Sabbath, intermarrying. So we go, reverse, look at verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. <coughs> now stop right there. You guys remember who Tobiah is? Is Tobiah a friend or foe of Israel? Foe, yep. And, and look at it. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's an enemy of God. He's one that we just read in in 1 through 3 that shouldn't even be around. He shouldn't even be around in the gathering. And yet, where do we see him? Where do we see him living? Look at verse 5. He was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. This This is a room in the temple. Eliashib prepared a room in the temple for the enemy of God where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grains, the wine, the oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions. So Tobiah was given this room where um, vessels and things used for temple worship was supposed to be held and kept. They're no longer there, but who's there now? Tobiah. Eliashib, his relative, put them here. Do you see the problem here? Do you see the wondering here? Eliashib gives Tobiah, the enemy of God, a large Airbnb room in the midst of the temple. Tobiah's presence desecrates the temple and makes temple worship impossible because it's unclean. It's unclean. This is like giving a room in Hogwarts to Lord Voldemort. What is his name? Voldemort. I don't watch that much, but here's a better one. It's like giving Darth Vader a bunk in the Millennium Falcon. You just don't do it. You don't invite the enemy in. That this is what happens. Now, Nehemiah in verse 6 does something. Nehemiah uh, conveniently points out, he's like, when this was happening, I wasn't there. Right? Right? When the cat's away, the mouse will play. That's what kind of is happening here. He says this in verse 6. He kind of gives us a timeline. It says that Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. You see, verses one, uh, chapters in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 12 is the first year that Nehemiah was there. He rebuilt the walls. He rebuilt the, pe- the people of God. And here, there's a gap. Nehemiah has gone back to Susa. He's gone back to serve King Artaxerxes as the cupbearer. And this, all this stuff is happening while he is gone. And then when he comes back... Probably no one knows the time, probably about five to ten years for something like this bad to happen. He comes back a second time. Verse 7 says, he finds this evil thing happening. And it takes him over the edge. You see, he finds this sin. And, and, and get this, all sin is evil. All sin is evil. And we'll see this in verse 7 and verse 17 and 27. He repeats it over and over again. The sin, the wondering is evil. It's evil. In verse 27, it's great evil. And you can look at the way Nehemiah deals with sin. It's a good way that we could. We're not going to use this, but you can hear this as we go through it. I want you to. First, Nehemiah sees the evil. He confronts the evil. He responds to the evil. He cleanses the evil. And then he prays. That's how, that's how Nehemiah handles these next situations. Again, all evil is evil. 
Verse 8. It says that Nehemiah responds in righteous anger. (laughs) And I love verse 8. How does he respond? He just goes into Tobiah's room and starts chucking stuff out of the room, right? I mean, how awesome is that? All of a sudden, you're in the temple, you're going there, all of a sudden you see like a headboard fly out of this room, right? And lampstands start to fly out of this room. And And you're just like, what is going on? You see Nehemiah. He had a righteous anger, and he acted immediately. He confronted it and started chucking the furniture out of the room. And then verse 9, he says he puts everything back in order. He chooses a couple other people to put everything back in order, and he cleanses the the, the chamber again. Now, many today in the church will probably be like, yo, Nehemiah, chill out, bro, right? Why are you so angry? Why why are you just chucking stuff out? Why don't you just be a little bit more gentle and, and, and go in there and talk to Tobiah? He doesn't do that. He responds with a righteous anger. And in fact, we'll read through this. J.I. Packard says that in these ways that Nehemiah responds, that Packard says that Nehemiah comes off exceedingly strong. And I would add, and rightfully so. Because God's glory is being profaned. Nehemiah is cleansing the temple here. It should point us and remind us of who? Who else cleansed the temple? Jesus did. Righteous anger. He had a zeal that consumed him for the holiness of his house and for temple worship. And he had to do it twice in the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2 and at the end of his ministry in Mark chapter 11. Jesus cleansed the temple because the priests made his house of prayer to become a den of thieves. They let the enemy in. A good verse for us is Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. How many of you guys have that in your kitchen? Might be, one, might, be, might be a good one to hang up in our culture. Be angry and do not sin. This is a holy and righteous anger in the New Testament. It is a command for you and me, but we live in a culture where we think holiness or loving is tolerance, is niceness. Is to let, oh, that sin's not, that's a respectable sin. We'll just let that go. Let's, let's talk. No, there are times where we need to be decisive and act accordingly in righteous anger, i.e., sex trafficking. There should be a righteous anger when you hear about sex trafficking. And I don't know about if you, but if you knew this, but sex trafficking is a big deal here in Fort Collins, Colorado. There's a, there's a problem there. That's why we join with Life for the Innocent and, and, and some other things to help in that way. Uh, what's happening in our culture, this is uh, in a righteous anger, this gender-affirming gender surgeries that are happening to these young teenage kids. That should, that, should just, that should make you angry, not at the kids. We should have compassion for the kids because they're just confused. We should be angry at the doctors and the hospitals that are doing all this for what? A buck. We should have a righteous anger, just like Nehemiah, when we see sin abound. And not only in the temple, but look at verse 10. He finds out that some of the Levites and the singers are not even around anymore. Not only, is, not only has that room been cleared out and all the things used for temple worship is gone and not there, but the people that lead the temple worship are gone. Because the people of God didn't take care of them. They didn't give like they were supposed to give to take care of them. Like they promised they would in Nehemiah chapter 10. They committed to taking care and not neglecting the house of the Lord. And yet they did. The the Levites and the singers and others had to go back and, and, and go to work and make money so they could support themselves. And so again, we see Nehemiah, who does he gather He gathers the officials, he gathers the leaders, and he confronts them in verse 11. Why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah rebukes, confronts their sin. And to their credit, they respond. They repent, they respond of their evil, and they give back what has been taken. And then he points faithful men, reliable men, to oversee the distribution in verses 12 through 13. But again... Why so angry, Nehemiah? Why such a harsh response? A severe reaction. And here, because sometimes 
when you let sin go unchecked, it ruins or stops worship. That's why. And that's a big deal. Because that's what we're created for. We're created to worship. Think about it. It stopped worship here for a short season. Those that were leading temple worship, they were out working in the fields. The Levites, the song, the singers. They didn't have the elements to lead worship. The grain, the wine. So worship stopped when Nehemiah came back. That's why he's so indignant. That's why he's so angry. It's righteous. The worship has stopped to Yahweh. The one that, that brought him back out of exile. We hear stories like this all the time here, don't we? In our culture. Where we have leaders, pastors, deacons that destroy a church because their sin has been left unchecked. We've seen churches close their doors because of unchecked sin by the leaders. It seems like we hear a story every week. At least, you know, at least I do because I'm in that world. And it's sad and it's sickening. But that's what happens when sin goes unchecked. That's what happens when we start to wander away from the Lord. So last week I asked you to, to be thankful for your leaders because that's what we saw Judah be in chapter 12. They were thankful for their leaders. They were thankful for their priests. They were thankful for those leading. And I said, that, be thankful for those that are leading you in worship. That was last week. This week I'm saying, keep us accountable. We need you to help us keep us accountable. We're not perfect. Our desire as our pastoral team is to lead you in righteousness and to lead you in the ways of the, of the Word. But if you ever see us veer from that, come talk to us. Confront our sin. So this is, this is the first wondering. We see the second wondering is neglecting the Sabbath, verses 15 through 22. Look at verse 15. In those days, in the days of wondering, in Nehemiah's second return, I saw Judah, the people of Israel, the people treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes and figs and all kinds of loads. And they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. In verse 16, you also had the, this pagan group of, from Tyre, the Tyrenians selling on the Sabbath. This is a much different scene than when Nehemiah first came. Remember, when Nehemiah first came, the walls were broken down. No one was living in the city. But now, man, the city is booming. The walls are up. The people have been restored. They're living back in the city. Econ the economy is blowing up. People are coming from all around to come into Jerusalem to, to, make, a, to make a profit, to use their business to sell fish and grain and grapes. And, and people are buying. The economy is booming. You remember back in Nehemiah verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 31. They said, hey, we will honor the Sabbath. We won't work on the Sabbath. But here they've gotten even worse. Because in, when they look at Nehemiah chapter 10, it was the pagans that were working on the Sabbath, and they were just going and buying food. But here we see now that the, the Jerusalem, the Israelites, Judah, they, they look like, man, we can even make more money on the Sabbath, so we're going we're gonna to join in and start selling to people. They're actually helping their brothers and sisters break the Sabbath. Verse 17, we see it. Then I confronted them about this evil they are doing profaning the Sabbath. And Nehemiah even reminds them. He's like in verse 18, hey guys, don't you remember that one of the reasons why you went into exile for 70 years is because you were not keeping the Sabbath. Your fathers and were not keeping the Sabbath. That's what partly sent them into exile. And like you guys are skating on thin ice because you're doing it again. Do you want to go back into exile? Of course they don't. So then Nehemiah goes into action, commanding that the doors be shut on Friday night. That's when the Sabbath started through Saturday night. And he also stationed guards there. Then verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside. So they thought, well, no, we're not even in the city. We're just going to go outside and do this and break the Sabbath. And Nehemiah said, oh, no, you're not. Verse 21. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will what? Lay hands on you. There, there, there's two kinds of laying hands on in the Bible. And this is one you don't want happening to you. 
I love Nehemiah, man. I love this guy. Here's the other thing about Nehemiah. He's probably about 65, 70 years old here. He's an older man. Can you imagine the, the stature of Nehemiah? This dude's the man. Empowered by God, of course. Verse 22, we see that Nehemiah and others put things back in order again. Again, it's not only Nehemiah, but he recruits others in the community to, to bring order back and to cleanse the temple and also to bring back them to worshiping the Sabbath. And then Nehemiah prays again. Now we've covered the Sabbath a lot of times in the last couple of years here. We talked about it in Exodus 20 quite a bit. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 10. We believe that we are under the, we're not under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. So we're not obligated to the Sabbath. It is the one command in Scripture from the old covenant that's not given in the new covenant. Colossians 2.17 says this, The Sabbath in the Old Covenant was a shadow of things to come, but Christ was its substance. Uh, the, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was pointing us to a greater Sabbath rest, and that was in Christ, in a person. So the Sabbath is not about a day of physical rest. It's about a person of spiritual rest, and that person is Jesus Christ. And that spiritual rest is the umbrella in which all other rests happen. If you're right with the Lord and you have spiritual rest in your heart, then we don't celebrate on the day, but you can celebrate it Monday through Sunday and it filters down to all of your other rests. So in Christ, we have the ultimate spiritual rest. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened and, and, and laden in heart, and I will give you rest. He is our ultimate rest. But there's still implications for us here. The people breaking the Sabbath here in Nehemiah's day are wandering down the same sinful path that we can, and that is this, that just like the people in Nehemiah's day, we can not trust the Lord for provision and taking care of us. That's why ultimately the motive why they're jumping in and joining in with the pagans, because they, they say, man, we can provide that much more for our family. Again, business is booming. It was really good on Friday, but on Saturday when everyone is back in the city and no one's working, we've just exponentially you know, opened up our, our base for customers. More people to sell to. Surely God won't mind. And maybe even ask yourself this question when you've been tempted down this path, maybe to make a little extra money. Oh, I can make more money and give it to God, right? Maybe that's what they're thinking. But ultimately what was happening here is they were not depending on the Lord for their provision. They were working in their own efforts. I want you to go back to Israel when they were wandering in the desert. Uh, Israel was wandering in the desert. They'd been out there for a while. And in Exodus 16, the, the people start to grumble a little bit. They're like, Moses, did you just lead us out here to die? Did you just lead us out here to die? How are you going to take care of us? How, what are we going to eat? Moses goes, sees the Lord. Lord says, hey, I got, I got this. I got this covered. I thought about this ahead of time. I got you guys. And he gave them manna. And he, and he brought manna, kind of a bread-like thing, down from heaven. And, and, the, and, and God's command was, every day you go out there and you just gather up a day's worth of food for the day. So Monday through Friday, you go out and you get Monday's Monday, you get Monday's food. Tuesday, you get Tuesday's food. When we hit Friday, you're allowed to gather it for two days. For Friday and the Sabbath day, because the Sabbath day is a day of rest and a day of worship. So on Friday, you gather up two days of manna. So God provided the manna. They did this every day, and they had manna sandwiches, and they had manna stew, and my favorite, they had manna cotti, and you know, they... Uh... Dad joke. But God provided for them. They didn't have to worry about the provision. God provided for them the manna to eat and also quail and some other things. And the same faith to rest in God's provision of God for Israel is also for us today. It's also for us today, for you and for me. I mean, uh, we find ourselves in a terrible economy, do we not? Inflation is, is out of control. I just read it, it costs the average family, it costs every family, whatever, an extra 500 bucks a month because of inflation. Everything costs more. And some of us, some in here are getting hit harder than others, depending on what your job is. If you're in any kind of 
selling homes or the mortgage business. I mean, you're getting... It's, it's a tough time for you. And what happens? Do we tend to rest? Or what, what, what can tend to happen? What, what, what wondering tends to happen? Is anxiety and worry tends to grip our hearts and our soul, not restful thoughts. Many of us in ask, might be asking ourselves, well, how am I going to provide for my family? How am I going to, how am I going to do this? Maybe I've got to go find something else to do. Or maybe even look at your thing and, hey, how can I cut corners or do something even worse? Lord is saying to you this morning, saying to me this morning, trust me, I got this. I got you. I am your provision. You can rest assured in that. You can rest in me. One of my favorite verses with this is Psalm 37. It's kind of the Romans 8.28 of the, of the Old Testament. Psalm 37.25, David says, I have been old, as I've been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously. God's going to provide for you. He's going to provide for me. And one great way to accomplish this even though it's not commanded, is to honor, not the Sabbath, because that's Saturday, but the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, which is today. It, it, it would do you well, it would do me well. It's wise that we would take Sunday and use it as a day of rest. First, that we come in here spiritually. That's why Sunday mornings are so important. You come in here spiritually, and you're, you're fed by the Word of God. Your soul is rejuvenated by singing the Gospel to God by prayer, by community, by people encouraging you. And then also your body. Your body has time to, to rest for the, the week ahead. I love the Puritans. They're one of my favorites. They, called the, they used to call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. The market day of the soul. Because they believed that a well-spent Lord's Day was necessary in preparing for the work week to come. So Sabbath is still good for us today. First and foremost, spiritually as we look to Jesus, but then also physically. So take Sunday and guard it. Use it to refresh your soul spiritually and physically. Third wondering. Intermarry in verses 23 through 30. Nehemiah 13.23, In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Again, Nehemiah 10.30, this, they made a commitment not to do this. Not to marry foreigners. Not to marry others from a different faith. Again, this is not ethnicity. We talked about this in, in, in chapter 10. In fact, you should all go back and re-listen to chapter 10. Um, this is not talking about ethnicity. Listen, there's, there's one human race made up of two genders, male and female, and thousands of different ethnic backgrounds. And so if an Australian wants to marry an Iraqi, praise the Lord. And if an American wants to marry a Brazilian, praise the Lord. If they have the same worldview and worship the same God. Right? But here, that's not the case. That's not the case. We see he gives the illustration of Solomon. Again, this evil in verse 26. Here's Solomon, the wisest, the most powerful man. And what did he do? He married many foreign women. And what had happened to him? It made him sin. It made him sin. It made him even go back to one of his, one of his wives who worshipped the, the god of Molech that offered children sacrifices. How does it make the people of Nehemiah's day sin? Look at verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah. They couldn't speak Hebrew. But only the language of each people. Why is this such a problem? Because the Bible was written in Hebrew. They can't read the Bible. They can't worship. They can't hear the people, the priests, preach the message in Hebrew because they can't understand it. This is why it's such a problem. Because sin takes you away from the Lord. It doesn't bring you to the Lord. This is why this intermarrying was so bad and forbidden. And again, we've touched on this before. I've seen this many times over and over again, and you guys have well. When Christians marry non-believers, what tends to happen is the Christian moves away from the church, moves away from worship. Why? 
Let me give you an illustration of the stool. If a Christian is standing on the stool, it's much harder to pull somebody up onto the stool. It's much easier to pull you down. And that's what tends to happen. Again, we've talked about this again. Um, just quickly though, if you find yourself in this position, God calls you not to divorce, but He calls you to adorn the Gospel to your unbelieving spouse. He calls you to love them as Christ loved the church. To pray for their salvation. To serve them with the Gospel. And let others know in this community so we can come alongside you and pray and rally around your spouse who doesn't believe and show them the joy of the Lord. Amen? Therefore, Nehemiah takes action. And it's severe. In fact, it's the, it's the most severe. Verse 27 says it was great evil and act treacherously against our God. So this is a great evil. And this is the second time that Nehemiah has to address the people of Israel because Ezra had to do this a couple decades earlier. The same thing. So what we're dealing here with is a generational sin. It's things that keeps on getting passed down from uh, the, 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 the fathers and the mothers of Israel to their children. They think like, oh, it's okay. Mom and dad did it, so why can't we do it? In fact, just side note, parents with kids... 65% of Christian kids say, yeah, I, 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 I did a non-believer. We have our work cut out for us. Got to nip that in the buck now, today. Anyhow, we see that Nehemiah, again, it's, it's severe, verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them. Now you got to go back again to chapter, uh, chapter 10 because a part of the renew, covenant renewal was like blessing and cursing. If, if you obey these commandments, you're going to get blessing. But if you disobey these commandments, chapter 10 says you're going to get cursed. And here Nehemiah says, bring down the curse. They entered into a curse and an oath and walked in God's ways. Again, and he beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Who wants to be led by Nehemiah in here? Raise their hand. I think all leaders at some level, in some ways, in particular pastors, I have to confess, there are times where I wish I could enact this kind of judgment on some people. Notice I didn't say on some of you. No one in here. Some of the people that left the cross a little bit ago, right? But we never do that. Because Nehemiah, I mean, there's, there's a number of thoughts and commentaries on this on how he's acting. One, we've got to recognize Nehemiah is not in pastoral leadership. He's not a priest. He's under the authority of King Artaxerxes. So he's more of a government official. He's a governor. So he's working more in that secular form. So some people think, like, well, maybe that's why for this, this extreme, the way he treats them. I think again, it's talking about other, there's a comment of, 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 of this is talking about extreme shame and humility, which was part of the culture of the day that you would, you would take the sinner out, you'd beat them, you would take out their hair, shave their head. That'd be the ultimate shame back then. So, all that to say is that that's then, this is now. How do we deal with this? Overall, we deal in the new covenant. How we discipline people that are in sin or wandering is not by beating them and pulling out their hair but Matthew 18. There, there are steps in which the Lord has given us in, in Matthew 18 and Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 says this, if, if anyone is caught in a trans, uh, transgression, you who are spiritual should what? Should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Or another word is meekness. Gentleness. It's, it's meekness. Now this doesn't mean you're passive. This doesn't mean that you're weak. It doesn't mean that you don't confront the sin and deal with the sin in an in a extreme justice way because meekness means it's exercising power or strength under control. It's used of a bit in a horse to control the horse. You break the horse um, 
by the bit, and the bit now can control the power and the strength of the horse. But it doesn't mean that we can go MMA on people. And we exercise the gospel just as Christ says with us. Now, on a side note, shaving the head of your teenager can be an effective (laughs) deterrence to sin. Some people are laughing here, especially my family, because we have done that to JT, right? (laughs) And just quick context, we did that to JT. He loves his hair, but he lied. He said he was here when he wasn't really there, but he was there. I knew. So I said, JT, that night, hey, where were you last night? He said he was there, but he wasn't really there. He was there. And I said, JT, I'm going to give you one more time. And I want you to, where were you? And again, he lied again. And the scripture says that God, there's six things that the Lord hates and two of them are lying. So there's a severe pressure because God hates lying. And I said, JT, tell me again, this time knowing I know exactly where you were, where were you? And so I shaved his head. (laughs) Anyhow. That's our family. Doesn't say you guys got to do that. You guys use your wisdom. But it worked, huh, JT? All right. Anyways, we get the, the summary of Nehemiah in chapter 30. Kind of looks back on this. Nehemiah says, I have cleansed them from everything foreign. I have established the duties of the priests, the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offerings at a appointed time and the first fruits. And he says, remember me, oh my God, for my good. And that, 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 that last prayer, all these prayers kind of remind us of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul looks back on the end of his ministry and he says, I fought the good fight, I have kept the faith. Remember me, O God, that, 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 that crown that is stored up for me in, in righteousness. Nehemiah did all that he could to confront and cleanse the temple and the people of God, but it still wasn't enough. And he knows it. And that leads us to the third and final point and the most important point out of all of them. Because we are prone to wonder, we need God's Son, Jesus. This is just a summary. Nehemiah 13 kind of ends in a downer, right? Like, why not, why not end Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 12, when everyone's joyful, you're on a mountaintop experience, there's celebration, the people have repented, they're reviving, they're singing back to the Lord. Why not end it here? Why end in chapter 13? Well, because Nehemiah 13, along with Malachi is the last recorded words of the Old Testament. This is, this is the last book along with Malachi that, that was written in the Old Testament, even though it, it, it appears here in your Bible. It's the last book. And, and, and the reason why they end here with all this evil, this sin, this wandering, is because it wants to leave a, a feeling in your soul as you read this, as you know this. Because what's about to happen is called the uh, intertestamental period where there's 400 years of silence, where God doesn't speak. He doesn't send a prophet with a prophetic word. It's just dead silence. And in here, it's to leave you and me and, and and Israel at that day. It's like, we're still here? We still have the effects of Genesis 3? The Messiah, the Savior hasn't come? We're still here? It leaves our hearts, there needs to be a sense of longing of the need for a Savior. Because we read over and over again, this is a mountaintop experience, oh maybe this is it. Followed by the valley and the wandering. Abraham couldn't fix our problem. Moses couldn't fix our problem. David couldn't fix our problem. Nehemiah couldn't fix our problem. The temple couldn't fix our problem. Sacrificial system couldn't fix our problem. The high priest couldn't fix our problem. It's meant to leave this longing in your heart and in your soul and in mine. It's meant to leave this longing. Do you know for what? It's meant to leave this longing. Wait for it. Christmas. Christmas. It's meant to leave this longing. As Matthew says, one of the first words written in the New Testament after 400 years of silence, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And a chapter later, 
the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ who takes away the sins of the world. That's who our hope is in. It's in Christ. Because Jesus is bigger and greater than Abraham. Jesus is bigger and greater than Moses. He's greater than devil, uh, David. He's greater than the temple. He's the greatest sacrifice. He's the greatest high priest. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the answer to all of our longings. It's meant to leave us longing for Christmas. And this is how good God is to us. We start Advent in two weeks. Next week's an open week, and then we start Advent. I didn't plan it like this. The Lord did. So we're going to go from Nehemiah chapter 13, where this longing, this pit in our stomach, to Christmas, to the Messiah in the manger, who's going to grow up and take away the sins of the world. But here's the deal. Even though we know this truth and we have experienced the realities of the Gospel, we still feel this longing in our own hearts. This, this wondering can still happen to us, right? Because we're living in this Genesis 3 world. We haven't hit that Revelation 21 world yet. And so just as people in Nehemiah day were longing and looking for Christ's first coming, we are longing and looking for Christ's what? Second coming. This, this should help produce in us, come Lord Jesus, come, Revelation chapter 22. That's how he ends the book. We look forward to that day when we will be on a mountaintop forever. Mount Zion. Do you guys remember that study in Hebrews? Where God will save us when he comes back and he will bring all of his people to Mount Zion. They will be worshiping and celebration for eternity. So this is why we end Nehemiah, and the Spirit ends Nehemiah this way. Because he leaves for the longing. The longing is answered in Christ Jesus. And so our prayer is the same prayer as, as John in Revelation again, 22-21, as he's exiled on the island of Patmos. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Nehemiah. Lord, what You expressed in Nehemiah's day, these mountaintop experiences filled with these valley experiences, filled with these wonderings of the heart, Lord, we still, we still feel today, even though we look back and know that You have come and You are the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and we already are there. That's our standing. We are standing. If we are in Christ, we are the righteousness of God, but we haven't fully obtained it yet. It's already not yet. We pray that the already matches the not yet. So we pray with John, come Lord Jesus, come. And I pray if there's anyone in here that's in a valley battling sin, anxiety, fear, that's wandering away right now, that You would bring them back through Your Word, through Your community, but more importantly, through Your Son Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.